Welcome to the 1CA Podcast. This is your host, Jack Gaines. 1CA is a product of the Civil Affairs Association and brings in people who are current or former military, diplomats, development officers, and field agents to discuss their experiences on ground with a partner nation's people and leadership. Our goal is to inspire anyone interested in working the last three feet of foreign relations. To contact the show, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com or look us up on the Civil Affairs Association website at www.civilaffairsassoc.org. I'll have those in the show notes. A quick shout out to LC38 Brand. They're offering 10% off for 1CA podcast fans. The promo code is 1CA10. LC38 Brand has a little bit of everything for the international adventurer. So check out their website at lc38brand.com. I'll have the promo code and the address in the show notes. Welcome to One Civil Affairs Podcast. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Brian Hancock, and I will be your host for this session. We're back with Brian Hancock hosting Colonel Tony Vaha. This is the second of a two-part episode, so if you missed last week's show, I recommend checking it out first. They discuss his experiences as the Civil Affairs Planning Chief for U.S. Army, Europe, and Africa, as well as his thoughts on the new Civil Affairs 38 Golf Program and discussions about the new Transitional Governance Doctrine. So let's get started. Let's talk about why the decision was made to make the 38 Golfs commissioned officers as opposed to warrant officers. What was the logic? It seems to me that if we had made them warrant officers, we would have had the best of both worlds. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that was a COA that I know was discussed at the time. And, and honestly, it was uh, senior leader decisions, like very, very senior leader decision to make it a commissioned officer. But I, I would offer there's a, there's a hybrid possibility mm. to, to what you're describing, because I concur. Making them go to a basic officer leadership course for some other branch that they're not going to be serving in right. for all intents and purposes. I still advocate that it needs to be a specialty branch mm. as opposed to a general career field in the Army. Make it akin to AMED, chaplains, and JAGs. And that way, it's going to be less onerous to manage the ILE and AOC and captain's career course and all, all these other requirements right. that come with a, a generalist career field in the Army. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, we already have an established model for dealing with these highly skilled professionals within a, the military contracts. I'm not clear why we didn't use that here. Maybe that will mature towards that solution in the future. I appreciate you sharing that. I definitely want to switch gears and talk to you a little bit about doctrine. You've, you've okay. heavily involved in that, including work for the proponency. Now, civil affairs, as you know, the bulk of our forces sit in the conventional reserve. However, a number of civil affairs soldiers, both commissioned officers and non-commissioned officers of the past decade, they have raised the concern that the civil affairs proponent produce a doctrine which is tailored to the active duty special operations forces community, kind of the minority of civil affairs instead of the larger force. What are your thoughts about this? And, and if you think it's an issue, what could we do to fix it? I do think it's an issue, but I, I think the root of it stems from requirements. Mm. Right. What requirements should drive all this. So I always describe at least civil affairs is civil affairs, whether it's soft or, or conventional. There's just different tactical enabling tasks that are tied to how those civil affairs elements employ. Mm. 
when I was a maneuver guy, you can do a movement to contact riding a Bradley, walking, going in a helicopter, landing. You know, I mean, that's the tactical enabling task, right? Right. The actual task, civil affairs, I, I think is the same. I wrote a paper for Small Wars Journal a few years ago, and I think our, our fundamental problem is we continue to define ourselves in relation to ourselves instead of in relation to the Army and the Joint Force. Yeah. Right? So then you end up with, with circular logic. Yeah. And for example, the current FM357 talks about core competencies. Yes. So a core competency is defined by Army Doctrine Publication 101 as a capability you give the Army to enable their operating system, mm-hmm. right? So when you say that our competencies are civil network development engagement or civil knowledge integration or CMI or transitional governance, so we'll hopefully we we'll talk transitional governance next, but that's a separate. So those are all pretty much defined to us. Yes. Right? We're not... Internally focused. That's right. Like a function. Yes. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. So not trying to say that, you know, I'm Moses (laughs) coming with the the tablets or anything, but um, I encourage the the civil affairs community writ large to think about it. And, And I've nominated some competencies as understanding civil problems that impact operations. Short and sweet. Yes. Not CKI. You do CKI to understanding of complex civil problems, right? Synchronize operations within our organizational partners. Very much what we need to be doing. And this one I'm I'm really huge on, prevent and mitigate harm to civilians and cultural property. Oh, yeah. If the Army, if DOD writ large is saying, hey, we need a way to prevent harm to civilians. What what would happen? I mean, that that was kind of our bailiwick, and, and we lost that, and they now have civilian harm mitigation program. Exactly. Were we asleep at the wheel in civil affairs, or possibly, or or possibly, uh, it was it was a concept developed out of full awareness of all the capabilities that are in the joint force. I don't know what triggered it at the DoD echelon, but if that's what DoD says they need, we're the program force for it, and we're trying to man and equip for that. Exactly, consolidate gains to enable enduring outcomes in the civil populace. Right. So these are things that I think sound more like core competencies as opposed to we do CA for CA sake. Yeah. Right. No, we do CA for outputs. Mm -hmm. There's got to be something that we're delivering. And and because of that circular logic, I think there's a there's a really good book I uh, read several years ago called uh, The Sociology of Military Science. Yeah. And in there, he talks about language Mm -hmm. and, and how if. Language is obtuse or difficult to understand. What happens is people recontextualize it for themselves. And that's what you see with civil affairs yeah. is because our definition, in my opinion, is illogical. Well, then everyone recontextualizes it for themselves to come up with their version of what civil affairs is. Yeah. You know, we used to say in uh, business, if you can't explain to someone in a 30 second elevator pitch, what you do and why it matters, you need to rethink that. Absolutely. And that means you may not have a functional business model. And some of the concepts that we're batting around are very, very broad and complex. Mm-hmm. And if our formations are principally tactical, where most of the training is going into how to prepare run a convoy and infiltrate and, and what, I'm, I'm not sure 
they're going to have the background in math, science, complexity, and deep subject knowledge to really get to those levels of meaningful insight. Because remember, they're competing with um, civilian organizations and uh, robust host nation capabilities, which are already working these problem sets. Absolutely. Right? So where are they realistically going to add value based upon the type of training they're getting civil affairs qualification course right now? And I think the other piece of that, if you look at the current FM357, right now they don't, don't have functions. So if you, if you go to ADP 101, it, it defines a branch or organization has to have a role, which is a broad enduring purpose why you exist, core competencies, capabilities you give to the Army, functions, which are major subsystems or tasks required to fulfill your role, right. characteristics, which are the attributes you want them to have, and then finally principles, which are guidelines for employment. Well, they don't, haven't defined functions, and having read FM 27.5 from 1942, mm. which was the original manual for civil affairs and military government, mm. the functions they identified of civil affairs were the functions of civil societies. The joint stability functions yeah. should be the functions of civil affairs, whether you're soft, whether you're conventional, because at the end of the day, we're looking at civil societies. Yeah. So we, there's already good doctrine on that. Absolutely. In, in joint stability doctrine. Yeah. And it, are, it marries up nicely with the fact that we're active in every phase of military operations because you do stability type operations at every phase of military operations. Absolutely. So, you know, that would allow us to take advantage of the goodwill and best practices that have already been evolved. And it operationalizes the whole force. Right. Right. Because if, if I have everyone looking at those joint stability functions as a way to look at civil society, well, it marries up with how we organized our functional specialists. So they could be, whether it's a reach back or push forward, mm. they become a general support reinforcing capability to tactical civil affairs, theoretically. Love your thoughts on the new 3TAC 5.7. I, I definitely appreciated the expansion of the functional specialty teams and, and what they did there, as well as the importance of civil network development and engagement. I concur that that's often internal, mm -hmm. more like a function than a core competency. So it sounds like there are some opportunities for future revisions. I'd like to uh, jump to a couple other pieces of doctrine that have been hotly debated in our community, just to get your take on it. The first is late in 2021, the Army published Army Training Circular 3TAC 57.51, Civil Preparation of Battlefield. Mm -hmm. Now, if we're going to reclaim our rightful place in, in step two of intelligence preparation of the battlefield or uh, joint intelligence preparation of the operational environment, we need to get that doctrine right. Correct. That's what will allow us to deliver that capability. So, so my question to you, did we get it right? In that particular product, yes. It's one of the best things I've read. I, I really enjoyed reading it. It makes sense. Like when you look at Pamisi, we don't need to help the Army with military analysis. I mean, there's aspects that we can. Perhaps there's, there's unique considerations. Second and third order of yeah. maybe. Yeah, exactly. How, how they relate to the society, perhaps. Right. You know, exactly. But no, I, I, it's a really good product. And... I don't think we'll ever reclaim, so to speak, but I do think that by our role, focusing on foreign civilian populations, when security events occur, the entire joint organization becomes myopic to the security event. Yeah. Right? And no one's looking at the civilian population. If they are, it's very tangential. 
th- their main focus is the threat. And, and that's what we're designed for. I mean, that's, that's why we exist as, yeah, as we're an a army. organization. Right, right, exactly. So I do think that without us both sensing and interpreting and informing twos and commanders, they have risk. And we provide risk mitigation for them. Well, I think we have the opportunity to do that right. if a few things change along lines of resourcing and command emphasis. But what we're seeing is, I'm sure you read Sean McFate's New Rules of War, et cetera. He makes a very cogent argument that at the strategic level, we've lost every war since World War II. So that transition from the tactical to the strategic, which often lies in getting the local population to do or not do certain things aligned with U.S. strategic policy, we've been unable to, to, to bridge that gap. I concur with your assessment that we're in a unique position to help with that, Mm -hmm. but I don't think we have the training, the resources. I think we need to go back through .milf BPF and take a closer look at that, as well as our connections with interagency and economics, especially when we're talking competition shaping. The arguments have been made that if we had done certain things in competition to affect the go-no-go criteria for Putin's invasion of Ukraine, perhaps we could have invented Ukraine. Now, I don't have the math and science behind that, but I understand the thinking. So that would be amazing if we could go in that direction. I, I very much appreciate you pointing out that opportunity. Hopefully, it'll, it'll continue. Let's hop uh, uh, to what you alluded to earlier on yeah. transitional governance, yeah. Uh, yeah. the big new umbrella <laughs> right. that we're seeing in our doctrine and the focus of the new Army training publication 3TAC 57.40. Now, as you know, I spent the last year here in Europe working with our first world sovereign allies, very, very different from COIN. We've been out of COIN for nine years. Yep. It seems like the mental models of that are still canalizing some of our thought processes. When I perused ATP 3TAC 57.40, it suggested that we're assisting our allies with transitional governance. Now, we kind of made a pit in my stomach because these are very capable, uh, very independent first world sovereign nations. So this statement kind of implies regime change, which, which might be appropriate in certain other areas and certain other conflicts with failed governments, but that's not the case, at least in Europe. What are your thoughts about the upcoming 3TAC 57.40? And what role, if any, do you see for civil affairs and transitional government? Yeah, that's a big one. Well, first, between my time at the IMSG and then SWIC Doctrine, and then also I did my war college thesis on occupation Uh, specifically. So I've researched it a lot. And the current construct, we have it wrong. Mm. And I, like you, I had a pit in my stomach, and, and, and I don't think it is just a Europe issue. I, I think it's around the world. Mm. Saying that everything civil affairs does is transitional governance is not good. It's, it's not accurate either. It's not accurate. It, it sounds arrogant. Yeah. It's undiplomatic. I don't think it works well working with a range of partners to achieve unified action, whether they be U.S. government partners or foreign actors. So I think part of the problem is, and I have a good friend, a, a German army officer who You know, he highlighted that some of the nations we're in, well, there's a reason we're there, right? Right. It's not like there's not a need, Mm -hmm. but it also doesn't need to be so undiplomatic and 
quite frankly, I think we are setting up tactical forces for a risk. It's a risk to mission. If they incorrectly understand, and whether soft or conventional, I I don't think uh, these teams are not providing uh, iterative counsel to heads of government and heads of state. No, no, and and, and nor are they they trained to do that. Absolutely. Some some are deep specialists in the 38 golf programs, and I know some of them have, have already done those roles on medical and agriculture and other areas. But a, a conventional civil affairs team trained in tactical operations Captain. is not a political right. think tank. Right? Right. It's, not, right. it's not, not a three-man yeah. ran, a four-man ran team running around, right? No. And uh, the soft side, you know, they may have a, a, an embassy mission and they may, they may send up, you know, four 20-somethings with no real-world experience to work with a four-star ambassador. But I'm, I'm not sure what, what the value add is going to be. I, I don't think we are man-trained and equipped right now to provide that kind of assistance that these host nation governments would welcome. So I've talked to every one of our civil affairs companies that has come into theater in the past two years as DCO. I've gone to their culminating training events and and talked with their key leaders and actually the whole company. And I always highlight to them putting four soldiers in a country of 18 million people Hmm. does not mean you're an expert on that country, right? You're providing observations, you're providing access, you're, you're, you're doing great work and great opportunities, but to somehow expect in an eight-month rotation or a six-month rotation that four to five people go into a country and are conducting transitional governance is a, a horrible scoping. And I, I get the requirement. I understand it. And I've been at two NATO conferences in the past two years where our doctrine has been briefed. And... There was a lot of anger when it got to the discussion on transitional governance. I believe it. Many NATO allies said, hey, we have governments. You guys aren't in here helping our government, you know. Nor do they want us to. Right, exactly. We're not here to overthrow Exactly. That's exactly right. So it, it just sounds very arrogant. And I explained to one NATO civilian from SHAPE, because she cornered me about this transitional governance topic. She had a great question. She goes, would you use your doctrine in your own country? No. No, absolutely not. And I told her, no, we wouldn't. And she was confused about the requirements. So you got to be clear about the requirements. What we're doing is we're taking requirements that are defined in international and national law, and we're extrapolating them across the competition continuum. And that's unnecessary comes from Articles 42 and 43 of the Hague, describe occupation, then DOD 5100-01 also provides the policy piece of it for DOD. The, the Army only has, if I remember right, 13 functions identified as a component. Sounds right. And one of them is conduct civil affairs operations, mm-hmm. and the other one is to conduct military government pending transfer of that to a, another entity. So there is a requirement, but we need to have distinct firewalls between civil affairs soldiers in competition doing security cooperation, support to civil administration. Old doctrine used to have support to civil administration in occupied territories, support to civil administration in friendly territories, Mm. because what they were looking at at that time was, what if we have to go in and help a NATO ally? Sure. 
right? That would be support to civil administration in friendly territory, right? And we're talking about Poland right now, right? Right, exactly. And, you know, I mean, I'm not saying we would have a big obligation in that right? because the host nation's laws are still in effect. Mm-hmm. They're, they're a nation, right? So I, I think they really need to do some rescoping. I, I would recommend killing the term transitional governance, go back to support to civil administration, and in JP 307 and FM 307 is transitional military authority, which yeah. describes what occurs in the occupation. And because I think we're, we're putting too much risk on the force that they could unwittingly cause a uh, international incident by claiming they're transitionally governing in X country. I, I don't want to name any, but uh, it needs some serious rescoping and I hope they get it right and I hope they help the force with clarity. When are you doing these things? Yeah, we finally had a joint publication come out on competition. As you know, we're going to be in competition probably 99.9% of the time, yet uh, very little of our doctrine, manning, training, or equipping is directed towards the one guaranteed mission we will always have. And this is, I think, another example where we just haven't haven't deconflicted that. I see what you mean about occupational governance, certainly to transition to a proper authority. Uh, there would be a role there, mm-hmm. but uh, in a persistent state competition, if we were requested, and probably wouldn't be a, a civil affairs tactical team, it would probably be those 38 golfs again, right? It, it would be a, to, to come in as a, advisors. It, yeah, it'd be what, a K-com. It would be very different yeah, yeah. than what we are yeah. presenting in doctrine. And it also it also goes against policy. So the Stabilization Assistance Review says that state is in charge of stabilization. Yes. So does DOD 3005. Right. Right. So for the folks that created the the concept, it just doesn't work. It it needs to be. And there's a graphic in FM 357 Mm. that shows transitional governance across the range or the competition continuum. Right. And it has a little call out in the top left that says, Tactical commanders will have to make a decision between support to civil administration or transitional military authority. Well, no, national political leaders are making those decisions. Right. Elected people that tell the, the army what to do. Right? right. So it needs some serious scoping on how we work as a force. And one of the things that we need to prepare ourselves and be realistic about is we may be conducting an occupation on behalf of an ambassador. Right. That may be the commander. Yes. Right. So four star. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we, we, we need to have a lot more flexibility built into our doctrine as opposed to, you know, these rigid constructs that are binary in yeah. nature. Doesn't lend itself to a playbook very well. And then we live in a very complex world. Absolutely. We have a few minutes left. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with the audience today? Yeah, I, I uh, really appreciate um, I retire next year. Oh, we're going to miss you. I appreciate you uh, conducting this interview. And and I've had such a uh, wonderful career in civil affairs, worked with so many tremendous people. You know, we we have the people. We just need to channel the people in the right direction. And I think that's what our capstone doctrine should do. It, It should provide flexibility, adaptability for problem solving. And I think as our current construct is formed, I think we are uh, way too rigid. And uh, I hope for all the practitioners in the future that have to go into a lot of times very chaotic situations, you know, that we can get it right and define ourselves correctly.
Yeah, absolutely. So much opportunity there. Thank you for your 31 years of service and everything you've done for the community. We're a lot better off for it. And even after you retire, look out. I'm going to invite you back to the show. Okay, sounds good. All right. Thank you, everyone. This concludes this episode of One Civil Affairs Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for listening. If you get a chance, please like and subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. Also, if you're interested in coming on the show or hosting an episode, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com. And thank you again to LC38 Brand for offering 10% off to our listeners. We've been nominated for the People's Choice Awards, and this is a little extra treat for those who made it happen. Again, the code is 1CA10, and the site is lc38brand.com. And now, most importantly, to those currently out in the field, working with a partner nation's people or leadership to forward U.S. relations, thank you all for what you're doing. This is Jack, your host. Stay tuned for more great episodes, 1CA Podcast.